Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so I've decided that Crossfire Hurricane is a bad name for this FBI operation, so we need a different Rolling Stones illusion for the FBI investigation. Gather no moss? Oh, I was thinking honky-tonk women. (laughs) Sympathy for the devil. Beast of burden. Ooh, I like that one. Ruby Tuesday? (laughs) I'm not sure how that connects, but but it's somehow suggestive. That makes me think of Eleanor Rigby, but that's not a Rolling Stones song. It's not a Rolling Stones song. No. Jumpin' Jack Flash was an actual spy movie, spy comedy That's true, movie. and Crossfire Hurricane comes from that song. Right. So there you go. I like Beast of Burden. <laughs> but only if it's got Bette Midler doing the duet with Mick Jagger. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Beast of Burden edition. That's going to be very apt for all the things we have to talk about. We've got lots of Rolling Stones references that will sprinkle, <laughs> sprinkle through the entire, entire episode. <laughs> exactly. Lots of beast references, too. I'm here in the Jungle Studio, the new Jungle Studio, with Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hi, everybody. Hi, Yo. We're all hanging in there. It's uh, been a week, y'all. It's <laughs> only half over. <laughs> yeah. It has not been a week. It's only been three days, man. <laughs> this is, I mean, I know that becomes sort of a cliche of the era that we're in to say, like, you know, that it's, you know, Time has become elastic and compressed and, you know, stories on a normal news day. There's like five of them would be blockbusters. This this three-day period has seemed unusually compressed to me. I feel like we're in that part of the of this season of this television series called Life where, you know, we're building up to the penultimate episode with the climax in it. And so there's a lot that's happening all at once. Ooh, we're just trying to wrap up all the threads. Yep. Right, the weird all... thing that got introduced in episode three, you're like, oh, shit, we got to wrap that up. Yeah, it's <laughs> all But they never did guys. in Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh. This is the Marvel Cinematic Universe exactly. of the television series exactly. called Life. Didn't didn't Trump also cut a campaign ad? This I I don't follow the Avengers thing, but somebody cut a campaign ad where he plays. It's it's his face on the supervillain who like annihilates half the universe with the like, Jacobs nodding yes, with a snap of the fingers. I'm like, was that purposeful or not? I, I, that I don't like that image. Yeah, I don't like it either. Well, anyway, that's a beast of burden for another podcast. But this week. The Justice Department Inspector General delivers a detailed report on the origins of the Trump-Russia probe. House lawmakers unveil articles of impeachment against Trump. And the Washington Post reveals that senior officials knew the U.S. wasn't making progress in Afghanistan, contrary to their public claims. What does any of that have to do with beasts of burden? <laughs> These are all burdensome beasts, damn it. I see. <laughs> right. I think, and Crossfire Hurricane is just too obscure. I just want, I just want to register my objection to the episode name today because, like – you just have to go with it. Yeah. You lean in. You lean in on it. Embrace yeah. it. All right. Listen, it was right. chosen with more purpose than Crossfire Hurricane probably was. Look, 
Crossfire, algorithm Crossfire Hurricane is a ridiculous name. Has anyone determined how they came up with that name? Uh, I think we need an inspector general oh investigation. Of this. John Durham is on it. That's, <laughs> that's, the thing that, that's the thing that he's waiting for the big special mm-hmm. bombshell at the end. What you didn't know is. Who named the op? Right. So let's start actually with Horowitz's report because in many ways – uh, this kind of this is a kind of a review, obviously, of the investigation that becomes the Mueller report, and the Mueller report is sort of the dog that doesn't bark with the impeachment articles, which we'll get to in the second segment. Um, a couple of just top line findings, and I just want to briefly go over them because I want to get more into the nitty gritty of things. I think the big takeaway is that Horowitz finds that the counterintelligence probe into associates of the Trump campaign and whether they had connections with Russia was properly predicated. He found no evidence of political bias. And I know some people have said, well, that doesn't mean he found no political bias. But he looked pretty hard at lots and lots of communications and didn't come up with any political bias that you would think he would have found considering he was actively looking for it um, and found, I think, by any objective standards, significant concerns about the way that the FISA application process was handled with regards to Carter Page. So that is the top line. Um, Susan, that's not going to settle anything. (laughs) And we are only – we are less than 24 hours out from this report. Horowitz is currently testifying right now as we speak before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And it's almost as if this report has been out for months and people have now just baked it into their position. So do you – do you expect this is going to change the political dynamic appreciably or is this just sort of kind of goes into the hole and everyone you know, finds what they want to find in the report? Yeah, I think this was always going to be sort of a choose your own adventure situation because everything is and that's exactly what we see happening here. You know, look, the the report largely – exonerates FBI officials from sort of Trump's conspiracy theory charges. It finds an absence of any evidence for political bias. Um, You know, Jack Goldsmith on the Lawfare podcast yesterday thought it was significant that sort of drawing the distinction between that and affirmatively saying there was no political bias, that that actually strikes me as a distinction without a difference because to the extent that the FBI ever concludes anything or Inspector General's report ever concludes anything, it's that after a thorough examination. um, And so the idea that, well, you know, these mistakes were made and we couldn't come up with another explanation, that's, first of all, all 17 mistakes are not similar in type or kind. Uh, you know, only one is a sort of a clearly intentional wrongdoing. For that one, the idea that the most plausible or obvious explanation is uh, is political bias rather than someone screwing up and trying to kind of cover their own tracks just, just isn't plausible. So, you know, I, I do think that we can say um, there is no evidence of political bias. Uh, Horowitz found that there wasn't political bias. I don't think that that's a misstating the findings of the report. And um, I think, and I think affirmed, too, that what many FBI – maybe didn't say this explicitly, but what many FBI officials have said in defense that they would have been derelict in their duty not to investigate based on what they were hearing and the evidence that they were receiving. Yeah, that, that not only was this a properly predicated investigation – it wasn't even a kind of close call. It was clearly this was something that was both properly predicated and also needed to be investigated in a quite urgent way. And I think it's plausible that at least some of the errors that we saw were in part driven by the sensitivity and sort of close holdness with which the Bureau was proceeding. Now, 
we should have a separate conversation about the errors related to the Carter Page FISA because those are serious and we should examine them. Um, But we also need to put it in context, which is that Carter Page is this one very, very small part of the Russia investigation. The Carter Page FISA comes after the investigation has already gotten opened. They're looking at lot. They right. They're opening this investigation. There's all these people involved. There's Paul Manafort's there. Michael Flynn's sort of already under investigation. There's this other guy, Carter Page, that has come across the radar screen as maybe having these contacts, and so they're looking at him too. Uh, using the FISA and other investigative sort of uh, techniques, they get a little bit of information about him. He eventually kind of travels to. Russia. He, he ends up featuring in kind of six pages of the Mueller report, and it's largely Mueller saying he went to Russia. Uh, it appears that some Russian government officials attempted to sort of speak to him, and he kind of passed that on, but he doesn't appear to be a foreign agent, and certainly he didn't play some kind of very, very important role. He's not some evidence of, of the grand conspiracy. So to the to even if we were to accept the Carter Page FISA as hopelessly defective, and we'll set that aside, right? I, I don't think that's the case. But even if we were to say every top to bottom about it was wrong and it was abusive and and uh, and we should throw it out the window. It, it, the impact on the larger Russia investigation is almost not. I mean, very, very sort of minor in sort of the larger discussion. Now, cabineting that and saying, OK, Carter Page is still a U.S. citizen. There was a FISA um, undertaken on him. There were obviously process issues that occurred in this FISA and a lack of candor and disclosure. So essentially how um, the allegation is that the FBI did not provide full and complete information to the Office of Intelligence in the Department of Justice, which actually drafts the FISA application and presents it to the court. And so therefore, DOJ did not include that information in its application. Essentially, they put forward what they thought, it seems to me, was the most incriminating and damning facts and left out ones that were exculpatory and importantly did not emphasize where they may have had doubts or reason to doubts, Chris Steele's reporting on Carter Page, which was a significant component of the of the warrant application. Yeah, so there, there are two real things, sort of categories of information that they didn't include. So one is they appear to have been overly credulous about Steele's reporting in general, not just sort of the, the dossier, but also how reliable and sort of critical Steele's reporting in the, um, in the FIFA case and sort of past engagements with the Bureau have had been. So sort of, uh, uh, you know, an over-representation about who still was and and um, and sort of maybe being too quick to believe him when they should have been skeptical. Um, the other is that there is some evidence, um, uh, or I guess Horowitz determined um, that Carter Page had served as sort of a contact source for the for the CIA. These are pretty complicated things. It doesn't mean he was like an operational agent, but it essentially means um, reportedly the CIA. We don't know the agency. Um, uh, at some point, and um, upon learning that he'd had contact with Russian officials, went and talked to him and said, "Hey, you know, you had this contact." What happened? And the Carter Page told them about it. And so, of course, that's exculpatory information because if you were a secret covert Russian agent and the CIA came to you and said, or have you been talking to Russian agents, you might not say, sure, and this is what they said. And like, the CIA told it. the FBI that. The FBI just didn't follow up on it. Exactly. And that information was not disclosed to DOJ. And so DOJ didn't put in the warrant. Now, uh, we can't know the counterfactual. We can't know what would have happened if they had this information. But I think there are three really critical things to understand. So first of all, had the FBI given that information to DOJ, I think it's reasonable to guess DOJ might have delayed seeking the FISA warrant. I don't know that they would have forever. I think that there actually were later thresholds at which they, they probably actually would have taken that step. But I, I think that's possible. Two, I actually think that had DOJ at the time of the original FISA application included all of that information on the application, the court probably would have signed off on it. Um, I actually don't think that it would have um, undermined the application to the extent 
judgment that they wouldn't have signed off on it. So what we're talking about here is process issues, serious process issues. That's not the same as saying Carter Page's rights were violated. That's not the same as saying the warrant or the, the surveillance was defective. And it's not the same as FISA abuse. And so there's a little bit of sort of a, a trick being played here. And so it's hard because you want to remain intellectually honest and say, OK, these are really, really serious problems with the process. But it's it's also being used to sort of make a much larger and wholly unsupported point. But I want to come to you on that. And I mean, A, a asked me, do you concur with, with Susan's assessment of how we should be reading these shortcomings, which just to summarize a little bit real quickly what Horowitz said, uh, that he said there were significant accuracies and omissions regarding the FISA warrant application and that FBI agents, quote, failed to meet the basic obligation to ensure the applications were, quote, unquote, scrupulously accurate. Now, <clears throat> you talked about a little bit about this on the Lawfare podcast yesterday and kind of raised the question of you know, are, are we in a world now where, well, maybe Edward Snowden was a little more right than people gave him credit for that the FISA is a bit more of a rubber stamp? Or, I mean, I know it can be very difficult to assess that considering we haven't, we don't have comparable scrubs of this detail to know. But nevertheless, these are not the kinds of things that we expect to see, right, from FBI agents in the FISA process to be leaving out exculpatory information and not passing on just the entirety of, of the picture. Correct. So first of all, I was being a little bit provocative on the Lawfare podcast when I posed the Edward Snowden question. You did retweet someone's comment about it. No, no, no. I, I, look, I think <laughs> it's a fair question. People like me have been arguing for years that this process is not pristine but highly rigorous and that the judges spend a lot of time and attention on these applications and that the FBI scrubs them really well and the Justice Department scrubs them very well. And then you have a real forensic retroactive look at a single Title I FISA application or a, 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 actually a trio of them if you include the renewals and the process actually looks quite ugly. And so I think that does raise a fair question. Is the average FISA application quite as well scrubbed as people like me have been arguing? Now, I do not believe the answer to that question is, well, Edward Snowden was right. Um, and I don't believe the answer to that question is the whole process is a sham and the court is a rubber stamp, the kind of traditional uh, civil libertarian objections to the FISA process. But I do think that the answer to that question is we should take a good hard look at how typical these kinds of mistakes are. And so one of the things that the IG did, which I actually rather approve of, is he announced in the context of this report that they are going to do a more detailed general audit of the way FISA applications are produced. And so I think that is a uh, a salutary thing. And I, I think having a good hard look at the way the process is conducted and how typical or atypical are these types of mistakes is a very reasonable thing to do at this point. Now, all that said, I completely agree with Susan that it is important to both to keep these things in perspective. It is not clear that the ultimate integrity of these FISA applications was at issue. 
and more importantly, to segment this question, you know, from the question that the critics of the FBI have been drumming for the last two years, which was not, were there technical errors in the FISA process? It was not, you know, were the line agents adequately scrupulous in their uh, handling of these things? It was, was there a coup and a treasonous conspiracy hatched in the FBI at the senior levels, elucidated through the texts of Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, and in which which reflects a kind of deep state operation to take down candidate Trump and then his presidency. And the inspector general answers that question pretty decisively in the negative. So here's the thing, though. I think, you know, to pull back from this and take a little bit more of a layman's perspective, why is it that supporters of the president have been able to spin up this fantastical conspiracy theory about the uh, thorough politicization of the FBI and the quote unquote coup that it carried out on the Trump campaign? They've been able to do that because of declining public trust in the our institutions of government. The FISA court, the very existence of this FISA process is a a gap in our basic mechanisms of transparency and accountability. It is a special thing that was created by Congress to address specific national security threats that Congress judged couldn't be dealt with through the regular court system. But, you know, there is a degree of transparency that the American people rely on to have trust in their government that they don't get here. And that's why it has to be so scrupulously worked. And the FBI, if it wants to keep this tool, has to rely on that. And so I think, you know, this is example one of two that we're going to talk about in today's episode, where what actually happened now that we see a thorough investigation is only going to erode the public's trust in government. This is a case in which now that this IG report is out and these flaws are evident, it, it doesn't matter whether the conspiracy is proven or unproven. What matters is that the report and the flaws it reveals are going to further undermine public trust in this institution, and they're going to make it easier for the next bunch of guys with political agendas to stoke the next conspiracy theory. And when we talk about the Seagar report in Afghanistan, we're going to have the same conversation. Look, and, and to that end, I do think that we should, you know, foot stomp the idea of how incredibly bizarre John Durham releasing a statement on the investigation was and how incredibly inappropriate, misleading and contrary to process and procedure Bill Barr asserting his own sort of spin on the investigation was again, because it actually seems like both of those decisions, most overtly the Barr decision, was designed to expressly exacerbate exactly the features that, that Tammy is talking about. I, I can't find a different explanation for why the attorney general would make what is on its face a false statement or, or at least a highly, highly misleading one about an ongoing investigation rather than 
utilizing the normal process for the attorney general to give comment on an IG report, which and, he did yeah. here. And we've seen, you know, critics of the attorney general have said this is the same thing he did with the Mueller report, right? It is. It's, it's to come out and say, you know, it's it's kind of a, a counter information or disinformation. Right, and to give that the head, right to give this man to trust that Fox News viewers are not actually going to read the report to try and offer the counter narrative. And I think one of the interesting things is that while it was wildly successful the first time Barr did it, it actually didn't work this time. And I don't know if that's because the IG report came out at the same time or if instead the media is a whole lot more skeptical when Bill Barr uh, offers his assessments of things now because he is no longer a credible person. There's also, just to put a point on that too, there's an effort by the attorney general and others to go back and discredit reporters and to make it sound like this was all some kind of fiction that was concocted and fanned by the press. I mean, the Steele dossier is a very good example of this. I mean, the report very clearly points out that the Steele dossier had nothing to do with the predicate for the investigation. I think it also shows that it was not actually the sole basis for the Carter Page FISA warrant, even though it played a very significant... And it does appear to be the thing that sort of took it over, it over the over the line, case. right, but also goes into detail about how they were looking for a way to get a warrant on, in, on him already. And I only bring that up because the dossier is another one of these things that's kind of like a totem that people have seized on, frankly, on both sides of the issue and have kind of like brought back to sort of distort the overall picture of like, what are we really talking about here? You know, and if you can say that uh, this entire investigation was premised on some Democratic opposition research paper that's only tied back to one person, well, then you can make the whole thing sort of dissolve. That is not what the inspector general found, though. Yeah, I actually think that uh, Barr's statement about this report is in some ways more outrageous than his statement about the Mueller report. Uh, among other things, it is more obviously false. Uh, you know, the, his statements on the Mueller report amounted to kind of the president's spin or the sort of reading the Mueller report in the light most favorable to the president and sort of you know, tripping over himself to, you know, adopt favorable constructions of it. There were sentences in his statement yesterday that simply are not true. And I, I don't have the statement in front of me, but he says at one point in that statement that the report describes intrusive surveillance of a political campaign. And the, the report, in fact, describes opening investigations on four individuals associated with the campaign. It, the FBI investigation was not an investigation of the Trump campaign. In fact, it, there's one point where Halper, one of the confidential human sources, tells – he was being used to get close to Papadopoulos and I think the page – tells the FBI, the Trump campaign wants to offer me a job and the FBI responds with, well, if you do that, we're done talking to you. Right. And, and for the attorney general to issue a statement – that basically attacks the FBI and seeks to to discredit the IG report on the basis that it is insufficiently critical of his own department is a extraordinary thing for the attorney general to do and I think actually goes beyond what he did in the Mueller case. We're, we're not going to have enough time to get – even more into the FISA um, components than we have already. But I did want – and there's going to be a subsequent inspector general report on the FISA process and we're going to have more time to talk about it. But I just want to read one quote from Julian Sanchez over at Cato who has written very thoughtfully for many years on the privacy and civil liberty implications associated with the law. 
his thought was what the report demonstrates isn't so much political bias as confirmation bias, and it ought to spur a broader audit of FISA applications. That's just sort of interesting kind of food for thought if what we're seeing in here, and I think there's some evidence of that, was kind of a push to make things comport to an idea about who Carter Page was. And I think if that happened here, it's plausible to think that that could be happening in other places as well. And we'll hopefully talk more about that in the future. Or hopefully we won't. Hopefully we won't find other examples of it. Um, But let's move on to the other big story. Well, the other big three stories of the week. The Articles of Impeachment, uh, which were revealed this oh, week. Oh, that happened? Yeah, that happened. Oh, Remember that? Man. Remember Monday? Yeah. God, mm. that was years ago. Ooh. Uh, of course, everyone knows by now, uh, and this had been pre forecast a little bit uh, ahead of time, but two Articles of Impeachment, um, one alleging uh, abuse of power, uh, the other alleging obstruction of Congress in the course of the impeachment investigation. Ben, they are – grave reading. They are sober. This is momentous. This is only the fourth time in the history of the country that the House has issued articles of impeachment against the president. Uh, But it also strikes me that politically speaking, at least, this is probably the least and the best that Democrats were going to be able to do. Do you think that's right? And are you upset that they didn't go bigger uh, and include some of the findings from the Mueller investigation? So I think the answer to all of those questions is yes. I think this may – yes, this may be the best that they can do. Yes, I'm upset that they didn't include some other stuff, a fair range of other stuff. And uh, yes, there are probably good reasons for them to upset people like me on this. So – The first issue, if you're Nancy Pelosi here, is that you have to hold your caucus together and there are a bunch of Democrats who – particularly swing district Democrats who were not supportive of impeachment prior to the Ukraine material. That is, you know, blatant criminal obstruction of justice detailed in the Mueller report did not especially move them for impeachment purposes, but the Ukraine stuff does. And I think, you know, in her vote counting, uh, either instinctual or actually whipping the vote, I think she's realized that there probably aren't the votes in the, you know, Abigail Spambergers and Alyssa Slotkins and for a broader array, array of this kind of thing, there is for something narrow. Secondly, if you're thinking as a trial strategy matter, you actually do want a document that sets up a narrative story uh, that is relatively easy to try and that tells a simple story. And then the elegant thing about these two articles of impeachment is that they together tell a cohesive story with a narrative through line, which is, you know, the president abused his office by trying to get Ukraine to investigate his political opponent with or without quid pro quo associated. And then he obstructed Congress's efforts to investigate that. And that's actually a pretty simple story that you can tell relatively simply. And yes, choosing to do it that way causes you to leave out grave aspects of the president's conduct that I have been arguing since, you know, the summer of 2017 should be the subject of impeachment questions. For me, the impeachable conduct of the president 
begins with his repeated calls to indict and prosecute and investigate Hillary Clinton. And if you're going to talk about his, you know, his efforts to get Ukraine to his abuse of Ukrainian law enforcement in support of his desire for investigations of his political opponents, seems to me odd to leave out his abuse of U.S. law enforcement to investigate his political opponents. So yeah, I am upset by what's not in it. I also understand what's not in it. Susan, let me pick up on that point from Ben with you because you wrote uh, a piece this week arguing that there was one clear case of alleged obstruction of justice from the Mueller report that needed to be in these articles, and that was the president's insistence that Don McGahn falsify the record uh, around key questions uh, uh, related to the firing of Jim Comey. That obviously is not- The firing of Robert Mueller. Sorry, the fire of Robert Mueller. Attempted. The attempted fire of Robert Mueller. That's not in there. Do you think that the absence of that, or frankly, the absence of any other accusations against the president has kind of irreparably flawed these articles? Or do you feel like you know this is sufficient and now the House can move forward feeling that it has sufficiently charged the president's you know, uh, bad conduct and that uh, even though we don't have the kitchen sink in here, that's OK? I mean, look, first of all, all Americans should be horrified and outraged when the House of Representatives does not do what I say the House of Representatives <laughs> should do. Seriously, and I just guys. think that's a, a pre-political principle that all Americans should be able to come together on. They should read my pieces and they should do what I tell them to do. Just like um, your children. So on that alone <laughs> is just obviously unacceptable. Um, you know, look, I continue to think it was – uh, you know, I, I I fully agree with Ben on sort of what the um, the strategic trade-offs and considerations were. You know, my concern is the lack of sort of completeness of the story. Right? Can you really explain what Trump has done if you don't sort of tell the full story? My sort of argument on this single element related to Mueller um, actually is a strategic argument um, rather than sort of a symbolic one. Although I think it has really important sort of symbolic and, and structural purposes. As as well. And this is because this is the clearest, most brazen, most obvious, well-supported example of criminal obstruction of justice in the entire Mueller report. Now, there are other things that I think you could say this also satisfies all the elements of obstruction of justice and there's a clear case. This is the one that I, you know, even Jonathan Turley and his testimony, um, the Republican called witness in, in that first judiciary uh, hearing, even he said, Said, well, you know, of the whole Mueller report, there was really only this one thing with Don McGahn and the rest of it was really so even Republicans had to concede that like this is this is really clear. Um, it also involves the testimony of Don McGahn, um, who, of course, is litigating this right now. Um, but it's really significant that it's Don McGahn's testimony and not like Mick Mulvaney or right, some of the other people they're trying to, to bring in, part because one of the risks of the House um, doing things like litigating for Mick Mulvaney's testimony, one thing that Republicans are trying to say, you know, you shouldn't make an article of obstruction of Congress because, you know, you should, you should go- seek remedy in the courts first. 
is that they could do that and then Mick Mulvaney could show up and assert executive privilege or other sort of uh, uh, substantive privileges assertion so they actually wouldn't answer the question and they have to start all over again. Um, Don McGahn has already told all of this to Robert Mueller. The only thing that Don McGahn needs to do in terms of testimony is say, is this true? Did you say this? Did that happen? Right. And, and so there's no sort of um, secondary claims that might come up. And also you don't need Don McGahn's testimony, right? It's all it's all there in sort of a well-supported record. Um, and this, I think, would be really useful to have in part because we see there are sort of two lines of um, of defense coming up, coming out from the Republicans. One is that uh, as to the Ukraine matter and the existing uh, articles of obstruction, one is like the record isn't sufficiently well-developed. And the other is that the offense isn't a criminal offense. And so most scholars sort of acknowledge that you don't technically need a criminal violation within sort of the meaning of the law, but it it's the slam dunk case. Or if you're if you're operating outside it lends of that, legitimacy, it becomes, right? right? It lends legitimacy. If you're operating outside, it's just it's harder to make that case. And so by putting this really, really well-supported article that came after a very long investigation that has lots and lots of evidentiary support and is a clear violation of the criminal law, notwithstanding Bill Barr's uh, opinion to the contrary, to the extent Republicans try and say, well, um, the Ukraine record isn't hasn't been developed enough and we don't have enough here to say that this is impeachable. You can then turn to those same people and say, OK, how about this one? So you, you can vote two on the no on these two, but yes on these. To the extent they say, well, this abuse of power, maybe we're uncomfortable with it, but it's not a crime and we don't believe it's impeachable because that has to rise to these high crimes and misdemeanors. And so then you say, OK, well, here's obstruction of justice, a very clear sort of case. And so I understand that it seems a little bit foolish to try and engage sort of Republicans on the merits because there are reasons to believe these aren't being offered in good faith. And so they're just going to argue something else. But by including this, you take away the ability to sort of make that argument to the American public, make that argument to sort of the parts of the constituency that might think, OK, well, you know, this is I, I could see how a reasonable Republican would search their conscience and decide to vote no. And so I, I think that alone is, is sort of it's useful to actually engage and, and counter it on the merits. And and I think it's a really important message to send to the presidency, um, you know, and, and to bound future presidents. This is kind of the only way to defend the proposition that the president of the United States cannot obstruct justice. It's really hard to pass laws or to expect the executive branch to defend itself from presidential obstruction. And since Robert Mueller determined because you can't indict the president and you can't accuse the president, that leaves this as the sole remedy. And by not taking it, even this very limited, modest, measured thing I, I do think that has the effect of basically telling future presidents you can get away with it as long as you have, you know, 60 odd votes, 58 votes in, in the Senate. Well, I'm not going to argue with any of that because I think, you know, on the merits it, in principle, I agree with you. But I think that if we all accept that impeachment is an inherently political process because it does take place in these elected bodies – then we have to accept that politics is going to shape how it's done now and in the future. And it seems to me that what these two articles of impeachment and the clean, narrow line, the storyline that they're telling, what they represent is a choice by Speaker Pelosi and the Democrats not to try and engage Republican arguments, not to try to engage Senate Republicans, but understanding that this impeachment which is inherently a political process anyway, is going to have its main impact in electoral politics because there's an election next year. And so 
the storyline that they have put in front of the American people is a storyline not just about what happened. It's a storyline saying keeping this man in office is a danger to the republic and a danger to American national security. That's what basically what these two articles say. Article 1 says this ongoing conduct is a threat to national security, although I would argue that I don't think the first article does a very good job of explaining why why the abuse of power on Ukraine represented a threat to American national security. The article doesn't spell out what American interests, what American policy was overturned, violated, subverted, or subsumed to the president's personal interest. And I think that's a bit of a missed opportunity, although they'll have plenty of opportunity to, you know, to fill that in. Um, and then the second article of impeachment says he's an ongoing danger to the Constitution. In other words, the message to voters is you can't let this guy have another term. And I actually think from a political perspective, that's the most effective argument to make. It's not debating what he did exactly. Do we know enough about what he did? It's not debating whether what he did was so awful. It's debating whether you feel like you can afford to let this guy stay there and keep doing stuff like this. And at the end of the day, that is what it's all about. That is the only decision about which the outcome is uncertain is the voters' decision in November. So from my perspective, I, I think they did what they needed to do here. And, you know, I hope they do the best job they can making that case in the months to come. Just one counterpoint to sort of Tammy's point about that they um, they, did, they didn't spell out sort of how this was harmful to national security. I actually think that's a, that was an intentional and strategic choice. And that's because constitutionally, the president decides what is in the national interest of, of the country. And so to the extent that they tried to make this about the president disagreeing on what is in the national interest. One, that gets into a lot of sort of messy constitutional questions. And two, it risks sort of creating a precedent by which future presidents could be impeached essentially for policy differences. And so the reason why I think they included this this reference to contra counter the national interest is, is they're trying to sort of say, this was corrupt. This was about his political goals. We know this wasn't about the national interest. In fact, it ran counter to the state of national interest. And that, and that really the um, they probably should actually clarify yeah. in the other direction of sort of the role it's playing, because while I agree with you substantively, sort of structurally in terms of opening themselves up to arguments, if they walk down that path, that does give the Republicans a lot to work with. No, I hear you on that. It's also a very high stakes and a serious thing to essentially say the president is corrupt and unfit to hold the office. I mean, that really shows the American public that you mean it. And that's important because everyone knows how this is going to end. And so the Democrats can kind of, I think, deflect a little bit from criticism that this is all just theatrical and we're going through motions because we know that probably sometime in February, the Senate you know, on a largely party line vote is probably going to vote to acquit the president. But if the Democrats actually put forward these very grave accusations that go to sort of core fundamental behaviors, you know, they can say, <clears throat> you know, no, we really mean it and we're putting forth, you know, a, a big effort here. 
And so you kind of have to know. In a way, I wonder if maybe the Ukraine example sort of gives them the neatest way to kind of shoot for the very broad overarching complaint that they would make about Donald Trump's entire time in office. And they could find you know hundreds of examples that they say would, would fit that narrative too. Um, all right. Let's pivot now to a third huge story of the week uh, and a proud moment for uh, some of us at The Washington Post actually. Uh, so this was a story three years in the making. My colleague Craig Whitlock uh, in conjunction with a lot of other very smart editors, very tenacious lawyers, <laughs> uh, spent three years fighting in court to uh, obtain essentially a what's called a lessons learned report consisting of many, many, many interviews with key figures on the U.S. and the Afghan side about the U.S. war in Afghanistan. And the headline essentially is that two, I guess now maybe even three administrations uh, have known that the war in Afghanistan was uh, effectively hopeless, um, hopelessly misguided without a strategy, that corruption was rampant, that we were not making progress, uh, and continued to tell the American people essentially that we were. Obviously, there are echoes of the Pentagon Papers, you know, in this. Tammy, I want to start with you just to get an initial reaction. I mean, this story obviously lands in the middle of a very, very crowded news cycle, but still uh, just, I think, you know, lands with, uh, you know, has had uh, already just sort of a, a huge effect on the conversation around Afghanistan. But what were your first impressions uh, when you saw the initial reporting? We're, three and we're day three and six stories, we should say, now that are coming out. Right. And so there's, you know, I think there's more that that we will see emerge from this set of documents that the Post obtained through a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. Um, but just to put this in context, what the Post obtained is not the lessons learned reports, which were written by the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, which is an entity that was created by Congress to watchdog the U.S. government's efforts to stabilize Afghanistan. The lessons learned reports have been rolled out, you know, by the special inspector general over the last year plus. We, act, I actually hosted the launch of one of the biggest of them in May 2018, which was the report on reconstruction, stabilization and reconstruction. And those reports are pretty unsparing in their criticism. This is, you know, this is an inspector general doing it work independent of the Pentagon, independent of the State Department. So what the Post got in the lawsuit are the underlying documents, the interviews that the SIGAR office, um, the spe Special Inspector General, conducted for, for these reports, other government documents that formed the factual basis and the analytical basis for the reports. And, you know, what the Post got here is pretty striking because, you know, what you see are some very stark assessments given some of them in real time, some of them after the fact, by hundreds of U.S. government officials at all levels. Some are super senior. Some are like people who are working out in the field, you know, saying very clearly like, yeah, I knew this wasn't working. <laughs> um, or, yeah, this poll came in uh, of the Afghan public showing that we weren't making any headway here and we sort of spun it you know, to say that that actually everybody loves what we're doing. Right? And so it is really um, chilling in the sense that it, you know, these documents um, make clear the ways in which both military and civilian actors in the U.S. government worked to 
to send messaging up the chain to their superiors and to tell others in Washington and in the American public that things were going well when they weren't. All that said, we've all known that Afghanistan was not a success story, right? So the the headline here is like, were we lied to? Well, in certain specific instances, yes, we clearly were. And the documents reveal that. And it's shocking and upsetting. Um, but in terms of the overarching story, we've known, right? And so part of what these documents do is make clear how long, how many people involved in this effort have known and the ways in which they tried to persuade all the rest of us to keep trying anyway in something that was not succeeding. So I, I have three three issues with this, and I have a lot of mixed feelings. On the whole, it is a triumph of journalism that the Washington Post got these documents and can reveal the details of the stuff to the public. But number one, you know, the Inspector General's lessons learned reports are themselves um, quite critical. And what they do is they put these interviews and this data that the Post now has the raw stuff, they put it in context. They paint the bigger picture of who knew what, when, and how about what wasn't working. And what the Post is doing here is publishing, you know, stuff that is raw material pulled out of context. It's a lot more shocking when you read it in isolation, but it's not necessarily a, a better picture of the full story. So I would say read the Post reporting along with the Seagar reports and and you get it all. Number two, the Post story notes that there's a ton of backbiting and second guessing all throughout all levels of the U.S. government on this Afghanistan mission. And I just got to say, backbiting and second guessing are endemic to any major initiative in any large organization. Anytime you 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 want to look for it, you will find it. And so it's hard and it's just hard for people who are out in the field at the pointy end of some complex multifaceted strategy to understand why things are being done a certain way in Washington or how their effort fits into the bigger picture. People who are more senior who fought battles over what the strategy should be have trouble letting go of the fact that they lost those battles. So you're if you interview people, you're going to get that stuff. And you would get that stuff even in a case of success. So the fact that Seagar went looking in a case of failure and found this stuff is not in and of itself surprising. And I think that that's worth keeping in mind as well. The thing I think that I, you know, as grateful as I am for the, for the reporting and the detail, there's one dimension of what the Post has done here that troubles me. And that has to do with the confidentiality of those interviewed by Seagar. So when, they, when the Post won the lawsuit, got the documents from Seagar, Seagar redacted the names of a lot of the interviewees because they promised those interviewees confidentiality so that they could speak freely to the IG without fear of retaliation. A lot of these people are career people. Some of them are contractors, you know, who might not get their contracts renewed if they're too critical. And so the Post, you know, number one, did a bunch of a reporting to kind of infer the names of some of the people who were redacted. But now the Post is suing to force Seagar to reveal the redacted names. And I have to say, I feel like in the long run, that does damage to the effort of accountability and transparency. Because if I'm a mid-level civil servant who has something to tell an IG, 
I'm not going to be honest in the future if I know that my name might end up in the Washington Post. So I sort of wish the Post hadn't gone quite that far. I want to defend the Post on this point. So the – and I, I would say if I were uh, the government, I would tenaciously uh, resist this second layer of FOIA. And if I were a judge, I would probably side with the government. Yeah, I but, mean this is an IG. So <laughs> No, I understand. But – this is a situation in which the public interest and I, I share your sense of kind of where the limits of the disclosure should be are the public interest is defined by the clash of the interests of the parties and it seems to me to be right for the post to uh, push for maximum disclosure and for the government to resist disclosure of this uh, probably in an overbroad fashion and for the litigation process to say, OK, it's reasonable to provide the whole document minus these names. I don't fault news organizations for trying to – in the context of FOIA litigation for trying to get more rather than less. I do think that's where the exemptions and the and the litigation process puts limits on what the newspapers get. Do you, do you think, Tammy, or anybody can answer this really? Maybe maybe other people want to take the crack at this, but you know, you've laid out very persuasively how I think for a lot of people, particularly in the foreign policy community and people who have read these reports and have been absorbed in the subject of the seemingly endless listless war and our policy in Afghanistan, that this is not a particular revelation, right? For many people, it will be. Obviously, all these reports have been out. They haven't really moved the needle. There is a different kind of impact that comes with a big six-part you know, major newspaper story. Do you think this has the potential to change our policy and sort of shake the foundations to the point where somebody finally says, enough, or we do the thing that we have to do? Because it does, I mean, I, I will admit I've kind of lost faith in a lot of journalism's ability to do that given the politics. Um, but I'm curious if this will actually, you know, push the – change the course that we're on. Yeah, and I would add sort of to the, to the question for Tammy of – Nobody knows the right thing to do, right? Presumably, we've been, you know, sort of persevering in this flawed policy because nobody had a better idea. So now we're here. It's sort of all been laid bare. It's not working. Do we pick up and go home? Is there some kind of consensus or, or view of sort of even even if Shane is is or, or even if the answer to Shane's question is yes, this does finally move the needle and sort of have this radical rethinking of things. Like, what does that even look like? Yeah, I think those are great, great questions. And I guess I I feel about this bunch of reporting a little bit the way I feel about the IG report on FISA that we were talking about or the IG findings on FISA, on the Carter Page FISA application that we were talking about before. Because, you know, in principle, yes, you want this reporting to come out. You want to have a good debate, you know, in Congress about um, what we know about why all these different strategies that were attempted, none of them brought us success. Should we continue investing money in this? When is it time to withdraw? How can we withdraw safely and preserve American interests in not seeing a resurgence of terrorism? Like, these are big, important policy questions. But because of the political context into which this reporting is going to fall, we're not going to have that kind of conversation. The kind of conversation we're having, and it's evident already two days into this, these six days 
of stories is we have a polarized, you know, uh, see, this is why we should have withdrawn 15 years ago. And, you know, this is just like John Kerry asking who's going to be the last man to die for a mistake. It's outrageous, forever wars, end them now, you know, who cares about NATO, et cetera. So that's one end of the debate. And the other end of the debate is, you know, how outrageous that the Washington Post reveals the super secret failures of our national security establishment <laughs> who should be able to do whatever they want in the world because, God damn it, that's American leadership, right? That's that's the political debate we're going to have about Afghanistan now. And we've – I mean we've talked before on the podcast about the really unsophisticated way in which Democratic – presidential primary candidates have talked about U.S. use of force in Syria, for example, in the debates. And, you know, I feel like this is in the context of public mistrust in the government. You know, all of these media, you know, polarized media feeding the idea that people are being lied to by their government, that this is just going to make people shut down. And we're not going to have the kind of discussion that we need to have about the whole notion of state building or stabilization and reconstruction as a counterterrorism strategy. I, mean, I also wonder how it's received within the government, right? If you're a civilian or member of the military that has risked your life, spent years in this undertaking, what does your leadership say to you now? What is morale like sort of if the message is all of this was for nothing or everybody knew. I mean, I, I also would imagine it, it could precipitate not just sort of that external, you know, legitimacy of government with, with the people, but also, you know, keeping faith with their own employees, you know, who, who undertake these these really, really difficult jobs. Yeah, I think you're right. But I also think the devil's in the details there, because I think that, you know, people who do this kind of development work in conflict and post-conflict zones around the world they know how hard it is. They know how long it takes. They know how incremental it is. None of the stuff in this report, the description of, you know, well, it worked as long as we were paying bribes to the local tribal chief and when we stopped, it didn't work anymore. None of that is going to surprise these people. The people that I really feel for are the military and National Guard folks who have been deployed and redeployed on repeated tours, the guys who are about to go out on their third deployment to Afghanistan. Those are the ones who are probably and quite reasonably asking themselves, why do I have to leave my home and family for a year again for this thing that we know isn't working? All right. Let's move on to something that does work, damn it. Object lessons. <laughs> My object lesson has to go first. Okay, okay. you can go Because I have to slip out immediately after talking about my object lesson to do my object oh, sure. lesson. Which is that 25 minutes from now, I will walk out on the stage of uh, Brookings's Falk Auditorium and host a launch event for uh, uh, the Washington Post's Ruth Marcus who is uh, uh, launching her book on the Brett Kavanaugh nomination and confirmation, Supreme Ambition. And I, I confess that I read this book with uh, some trepidation because the Kavanaugh confirmation is something I literally never want to think about again. And I hate the subject. And Never mind that the guy's going to be on the court for the rest of his life. Yes. Uh, you know, and there's, so there are a lot of good reasons to never think about the Brett Kavanaugh nomination and confirmation. Uh, the book is magnificent. 
and I I read it sort of against my will. And um, you gonna tell Ruth that? Uh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Um, and um, I thought I'd have to be held down and force read this book. It it is a model of really richly reported. I mean, she like seems to have talked to everybody and read every scrap of paper associated with the nomination, with all those emails that the White House, uh, the National Archive released. She seems to have read all of them, and. Also, a great deal of legal sophistication and institutional sophistication about the Supreme Court, and it's just a really well-told story. And so, I commend it to you all, despite myself. I have to say, the few times that I saw Ruth in the elevator, or we'd walk past each other in the hall, and you always, with some trepidation, ask a colleague, "How's the book going?" Mm-hmm. And usually, you get sort of like some glare, like, "Don't talk to me about that," or "Oh God, please don't remind me." She was so relentlessly positive and just enthused, and it was like she was just on a bullet train with that book, man. Well, she, she did. She did it really fast because yeah. we're only a year out, yeah. and so she, and she, she produced it really fast, and it is not a. It does not show. It's it's a remarkably well done piece of work. Great. Kudos, Ruth. Okay, Susan, what's your object? I also have an object lesson, and it is also a Washington Post story. Oh my wow. God. An important Washington be a theme here. Post. Love for story. the post today. Entitled Someone is Going Miniature Cowboy Hats on Pigeons in Las Vegas. What? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> This is the news we need now. Reminding you once again, we are a national newspaper. (laughs) There is a whole long story under that, but I think the headline kind of captures the whole thing, which is just in Las Vegas, someone is gluing. Gluing? It does appear. There's there's a long debate in the article about whether or not some sort of oil is being used, <laughs> but I believe the consensus view is that it does appear glue. The pigeons apparently will molt, and then the hat will come off. Um, again, I'm not at like I, this is a horrible uh, crime against pigeons. I just <laughs> why is this happening? What is the security question related and to this object? It's just uh, you know important you know, if that we think outside the Beltway. If people can put cowboy hats there on pigeon chain, what else can they do? And just because I have no documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias was the reason for the cowboy hats, I don't have – it doesn't – we can't affirmatively say that. And I just think it's like a really important story that we should get to the bottom of maybe with a special counsel or inspector general's report. We should have skipped the IG report and talked about the Just pigeons. a suggestion. Yes. There's a video too. Oh, thank God. Oh, great. <laughs> um, well, I'll do one. I'll do my object, which is also a Washington Post one. Uh, my object is my colleague and my buddy John Hudson this week, who covers foreign policy and diplomacy for the Post, who uh, went to the press conference that Russian Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov had with uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, in which Lavrov just went on and on about. We hear all these allegations that we interfered in your election, and I've never seen any evidence of this. No one has ever shown me any evidence of this. I've asked people in your government time and again for you to show me evidence of this, and I just never see it. So when it came time for the Q&A, John slid up and said, have you read the Mueller report? (laughs) Because it's actually quite detailed and goes into the evidence at great length. Uh, Sergey Lavrov, I couldn't tell if he had read it or not, but was not impressed by John's question. I was, however. <laughs> yes, well so, done, John. Go, John. Good question. Tammy, what's your object? 
Um, so you will recall, dear listeners, that last week's edition was the negative one edition. And we asked you to tell us what consumer products should be named negative one after last week's edition. I just want to read out some of the delightful suggestions we got on Twitter. I'm not going to read names because A, I'll botch them and B, on Twitter, some people just don't use their real names. It's really a thing. So I'll just read the products. So negative one, the country code Trump wants to assign to Greenland. Excellent. <laughs> I like this one. It's conceptual. The negative one carpenter's square. Turn your imagination into reality. What's a carpenter's square? It's. It's a kind of it's a kind of ruler. It gives you a oh, true like a ninety rule? degree. Uh, no, like a ninety degree square. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like a sexton. <laughs> like a sextant. No, it's not like a sextant. You just wanted to say sexton. <laughs> yeah. Or like a stetson that you glue on a pigeon. Okay, wait. There's more. Negative one. Cat pee neutralizer. Ooh. A product yeah. we could all use. Sure. Uh, negative one. The Trump fastic IQ test. Clever. <laughs> Very clever. Uh, wedding invitations for the relatives you don't want to invite. Oh, I'll give you a negative one. Will <laughs> you be my negative one? <laughs> <laughs> you can be my negative one. Uh, I loved this one. Anti-deodorant. Use it and lose the person you're with. Ooh. They'll be your negative one. Negative one. It's like cat pee, but deodorant. <laughs> and then divorce attorney. Nice. <laughs> negative one divorce attorney. Uh, and Coke negative one, a new diet soda destined to outsell Coke zero. Ooh, maybe Trump would drink that. Yeah, I just want to Coke. say you guys are so clever and we love it. And um, and thank you for submitting all these fantastic ideas, none of which will be available on the Love Fair store. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> I was going to tell people that they would be. No fun. No fun. Well, we really appreciate those. Uh, and that does bring us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can't find any of those products, but you can definitely find glue for pigeon hats on our website. And what? it'll be a Lawfare pigeon cowboy hat. <laughs> Lawfare a glueless. pigeon cowboy hat. <laughs> humane. Dot glue. A humane glueless Lawfare pigeon cowboy hat. Water-soluble <laughs> glue. With a little, little rational security on the brim. <laughs> yeah. When the pigeons that get wet. That is the kind the of viral come. marketing we need to take this podcast to the next level. <laughs> rational security pigeon hats. Oh, God. We're going to do it. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. Send us pictures of your pigeon hats. No, really don't. Don't do that. That's cruel. You can follow us on Facebook. You can find us wherever you download podcasts, really. And when you do, please be sure to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week was Jacob Schultz. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Bill Barr and his Rolling Stone tribute band, Street Fighting Man. <laughs> All right. All right. Good Stones reference. I'll buy it. For sure it fits. Sophia Yan would gladly play like some honky-tonk piano behind that. No (laughs) doubt. On behalf of my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tacoma Tacoma, Tacoma Park and Wittes. (laughs) I'm a nuclear freezer. (laughs) I'm Shane Harris, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.